I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Parents, have you ever told your kids to do something only to have them just obey you in part? (laughs) You tell your kids, I want you to have the clothes folded and the, the dishwasher unloaded by the time I get home and you come home. And the dishwasher's unloaded, but that pile of clothes is still sitting there and they're sitting there watching TV. Sound familiar? And they're like, we, we unloaded the dishwasher. We were, we were thinking about starting on the clothes here in just a minute. Something that Leslie and I have had to tell our girls over the years is that delayed obedience or partial obedience is disobedience. That is a lesson that God's people Israel had to learn and relearn. They had a difficult time learning that lesson, especially in the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. Last week we we introduced the book and we learned that God's people at this time in the book of Judges, they're, they're having a tough time. While they've been saved from Egyptian slavery, they've been led out by Moses to the edge of the land of promise and then they were led into the promised land by Joshua at this time they're leaderless Moses has died and then Joshua has died and they they know what they're to do God told them through Joshua that they are to move throughout the land and push their enemies out but they're wondering who's going to lead them to do this who's going to take the lead God tells them Judah will Judah shall lead them. I have given you this land. You are to go and take it. You're to drive out your enemies. And Judah is going to lead you to do this work. How should they have responded to that? They should have responded in obedience, right? And they do it first, but they drift pretty quickly after. So this morning, we're going to study how God's people respond, and we're going to learn why we should be obedient, why we should obey God completely and without delay. The first reason is because God keeps His promises and He helps His people do what He tells them. That's point number one. God's people are to obey Him because He keeps His promises 
and he empowers his people to accomplish his will. We have said in the past that if God has said it, it is as good as done. God keeps his word, amen? He keeps his word always, or he's not God. If God has said it, we are to believe it and act in accordance with that belief because God has said it. That's what it means to live by faith, to walk in faith. God tells them that Judah shall lead them in taking the land and driving out the Canaanites out of the land, and they respond appropriately at first. Pick up reading with me in Judges chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I'm going to be reading a lot of text this morning, okay? So just hang with me because it's pretty clear what's going on, but there's a lot of narrative here. Beginning in verse 3. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoniah Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoniah Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Judges is rough. Get ready. All right. I told you if we went to go see it in the theater, many of us couldn't see it if it was an accurate uh, depiction here because of, of how graphic the content is. But God promises his people if they trust him and push their enemies back, they will be successful. He keeps his word, doesn't he? We see that here. Now, some argue that we see early signs of doubt because Judah calls for help from his brothers and because they do not kill Adoniah Bezek. There's an argument that, that Judah begins to compromise and disobey from the jump and commentators go back and forth. The Holy Spirit is silent on whether that's the case here. And the angel of the Lord is going to descend and he's going to give his evaluation of how well they do and mentions nothing of that in Judges chapter 2. I believe they're doing okay here. All God's people are called to take the land, right? Judah is called to lead. Judah is leading, simply calling upon their brothers for support. And while they don't kill Adoniah Bezek, they do pay him back, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, for his cruelty as a leader. God's enemies at this time, they had been living and ruling as if God were not the one true and living God of all. So God uses his people, Judah and Simeon, as instruments of his judgment. It's the pagan ruler, Adoniah Bezek, who acknowledges this. He, he said he was deserving of all this terrible treatment that he was receiving. He confessed his sin before God. Look at verse 7. And Adoniah Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. That's Pretty amazing right there, right? He acknowledges that this judgment is a judgment from God on him. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So he did eventually die. I believe 
God's people Israel have a good start here. The pattern of this book is that they start in a good place and they spiral out of control. So we're going to watch this spiral each and every week. It's going to get worse and worse. But they're, they're up to begin with. Judah takes the lead was ready for battle, was not hesitant about going in to possess the land. And they experienced success early as they followed the Lord in obedience, okay? Verses 8 through 11. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Now this is pagan Jerusalem. Think about the timeline. I messed that up last week. 1020s BC, I said it, but it read... AD, I don't know what I was thinking, but it's BC, okay? Think the timeline here. This is pagan Jerusalem, the city before it became the dwelling place of God with man on the earth. This is the city under control of the wicked Canaanites. Verse 9. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Safer. So Judah takes the lead, obeys God, begins to push out their enemies, and God brings success through their hands, right? They are instruments of God's judgment against Bezek in verse 4, Jerusalem, verse 8, Hebron, verse 10, and Debir, verses 11 through 15. So all you got to know here is they're being obedient, pushing God's enemies out. God is bringing success. In verse 12, we are brought back to a familiar face. We return to a familiar face, a man by the name of Caleb. How many of y'all remember that name? Caleb was with the generation before. Only he and Joshua made it to the land that God promised because when they sent out spies to take the land, everybody else was fearful because of who was in the land, but Caleb and Joshua trusted God. They're like, let's take it, let's go right now. And so th those two are blessed in that they are allowed to enter into the land of promise, the only two from that generation, and he's given land in the promised land. We return to Caleb's story here. Let's look at it, verse 12. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Safer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey. Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So Caleb issues a challenge. Whoever steps up in the lead and pushes back the enemy here, I will give him my daughter as a wife, I will bless him. Othniel steps up because of his obedience to attack Kiriath Safer and capture it. He was blessed with Aksa, Caleb's daughter, and he was blessed with land and prosperity as well. 
We have discussed in the past that when we obey the simple commands of God, we experience blessing on the road to obedience. We absolutely do. We never force God's hand to do anything. There's, of course, been abuses of this. If you obey, God's obligated to give you everything that you want. That's not what this teaches. But, it, but, but we see here that we don't put God in our debt, but, but Scripture is clear that there is blessing that comes with obedience. We see that here with Judah. We see that here with Othniel. Judah was obedient, and they experienced success. They pushed their enemies back. Othniel is obedient, and he steps up to the challenge issued by Caleb, and he is blessed with a wife and with land and with prosperity. Folks, we experience blessing on the road to obedience. Think about it. When you forsake your sin, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, what happens as a result of that? We experience forgiveness. We experience salvation. We are adopted into the family of God. We move from being enemies of God to children of God. When you study the word of God, when you devote yourself to the practice of prayer, which we're called to do in God's word, we grow closer to God and we grow more like Jesus. Blessings on the road to obedience. Be obedient. Judah continued to experience Blessing and military success through their obedience. Look at verses 16 through 19. And the descendants of Kenite, of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lie in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. God kept his word. Judah led God's people Israel in accordance with God's word to take the land God promised. He promised to push back their enemies and everywhere they went in obedience, they were successful. God made promises to his people. They obeyed and he made good on those promises. That's how it works. We said last week, God is faithful. If he says he is going to do something, he will always do it. We can trust that he will keep his word completely. God is faithful. God acts in accordance with who he is. He always keeps his word no matter what. You can bank on that. You can depend upon God because he always does what he says even when we do not. He keeps his word. We're going to see that in Judges. God's people experience blessings of God here through their obedience. They see the faithfulness of God on display. He promises them they will take possession of the land. He promises them they will be successful at pushing back their enemies out of the land. They believe God, faithfully follow Him, and are successful at the start. If only they would have continued down this path. 
That's the frustrating thing we read, right, in God's Word. And really, that's the frustrating thing about us. We're told in verse 19, the Lord was with them. He told them, through Joshua and Joshua 23, they would push their enemies back, drive their enemies out. They do. He is with them. We learn in Scripture, God does not send His people into battle without Him being with them and fighting for them. He blesses those He sends with His presence and with His help. This is so important for us. I want you to get this. God does not call us to be successful in our own strength. He does not call us to produce success. He calls us to be faithful, and He produces the fruit in and through us. He does not call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. And then when He brings fruit from that faithfulness, He deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise for it. We often miss this. We labor as if success is brought about by our own efforts and strategies and resources. And when the Lord brings the increase, we, ask, we act as if we're the ones deserving of the credit. And we write the books and we read, reap the benefits from that. Don't make that mistake. Learn from Judah here in these first few verses. God calls us to be faithful. To obey Him, believing He will do what He promised. He calls for us to give all glory and honor and praise to Him for the fruit that comes from our faithfulness. Again, wish I could say that Judah continued on this path. This would be a very different book if they did. But they deviate pretty quickly, teaching us a very important Lesson from their failure. We can learn from failures as well as successes. We, we have both here. In the following verses, we learn that when convenience and compromise trump obedience, God's people suffer the consequences. They try to compromise. They try to go the easier route. They bypass obedience and they suffer the consequences. That brings us to point number two. God's people are to obey Him without compromise or pay the price spiritually. There are consequences to disobedience. Blessings to obedience, consequences to disobedience. Pretty simple, right? Look at verse 19. Starts in a good spot. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country. But, ah, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he, he drove out from it three sons of Anak. But, don't pass over that, People of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. Not just with Judah, with Joseph as well, with God's people, verse 23. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly called Luz. 
And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go, and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. Just moved that city somewhere else. That is its name to this day. Let's return to the command God gave his people. Pretty clear. Drive out the enemies completely out of the land, right? Drive them all out. I will fight for you. Be obedient in this way. Drive out these foreigners. Now, now let's pause for a minute because I didn't ask this last week. And, and let me lay this question on you. Was it wrong to take this land that was already occupied by these foreigners and just move them out of the land? Is it okay just to remove another race of people from a land that they inhabited? That's a pretty good question, right? Sometimes that's wrong. But is it here? Well, first, let me remind you, Psalm 50, beginning in verse 10, every beast of the forest belongs to the Lord. The cattle on a thousand hills, the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field are his. This land doesn't ultimately belong to the Canaanites, right? It belongs to the Lord. That's true of everything. And his reasons for removing them is not racial, it's religious, okay? They are, they are called to remove the Canaanites so that they would not fall under their religious influence. They're told by Joshua in Joshua 23, verse 7, you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or, or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God. What matters most is not one's race or background, but influence. Very, very important. Who's influencing you? Who are you running with today? Is it helping you or is it hurting you spiritually? Look at who you spend time with. Ask this simple question. Does my relationship with them make me more like Jesus or less like Jesus? If the answer is more, make more time. If less, less. Simple application. We learned here from God's people. Some of you ask, well, what about ministry purposes, Graham? Huh? Are we supposed to be, be ministering to others? Same application. Are you influencing them for Christ? Or are they influencing you for the world? If you're influencing them for Christ, it makes you more like Jesus. If they're influencing you more for the world, less like Jesus. We see the same principle here. Notice we have a man from Luz that the men of the tribe of Joseph let go because he provides for them some, some important intel way into the city. Sort of sounds like Rahab, right? With Joshua, she worked against her people with God's people. Here's the difference. Rahab joined the people of God and followed the one true and living God. What happened with this man? He left Luz with his family, moved to the land of the Hittites, built a city, called its name Luz. And it's there to this day, to the time of this writing. Barry Webb in his commentary on Judges says this. Look at this. This man, unlike Rahab, does not become an Israelite. He remains a citizen of Luz 
and therefore still a Canaanite at heart. The end result is that two cities, one Israelite and the other Canaanite, exist side by side. The victory at Bethel turns out to be no real victory at all. They compromise, they pay the price. You compromise when it comes to obedience, you pay the price. That's the story across this land that God promised His people. We see the consequence of compromise again and again. Bear with me while I read this long text to you, beginning in verse 27. Very simple what's taking place here, though. Follow with me. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ablim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalo. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. If you think that's good, think again. We'll talk about it in a minute. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alob or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. You just got to read them fast and with confidence. <laughs> Y'all don't know either. You know it. Verse 32. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anoth became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor, and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Okay. So notice here, there are places where the Canaanites are subjected to forced labor, right? We will learn later their existence, even in that way, cause major issues for the people of God. They're making compromise. They're compromising what they've been called to do, and they're going to pay the price. They think, hey, it's easier just to do this. I know we're strong, but we'll just, we'll just have them work for us. And they think that's going to help them. They're wrong. There, there are places where God's people are pushed back completely. We learn in verse 34 that the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back, did not allow them to occupy the plain. The Amorites would later be subjected to forced labor by the people of Joseph. We're told in verses 19 through 36 that God's people, Israel, could not and did not drive the Canaanites out of the land of promise. Now, what is up with that? Didn't God tell them to take it? Didn't he say, I'm going to be with you? But we're told they're unsuccessful. Why? They give some reasons. 
Beginning in verse 19, the inhabitants of the plains had chariots of iron. They're strong. They're tough. They're, they're too strong for us. Verses 23 through 26, we learn the people of Joseph needed secret intel from this man of Luz to get into Bethel or they would not be able to take the land or so they thought. They could not, they did not, they were not allowed. How do we make sense of this? Were they truly not able to drive them out? Did God give them a task that they could not accomplish? Remember, the Lord's with them. He, he told them that if they trust Him and follow Him, He will push back their enemies. If the Lord is the one fighting for His people, what in the world happened? Why weren't they victorious? Are these armies stronger than the Lord? Say no. What happened? We find our answer to that question in verses 1 through 5 of Judges 2. Very interesting account of the angel of the Lord appearing to God's people Israel to evaluate how well they have done in obeying God's command to take the land. Now, who is the angel of the Lord here? Just quickly, not to get bogged down in the details, but this is an important one. There are times when angels from God appear as messengers for God, and there are times when God himself appears in the Old Testament in human form and in the form of angelic beings to, to issue the message himself, right? That's what I believe we have here. This is what is called a Christophany, okay? Fancy 25-cent term for the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. I didn't just pull that from nowhere. There's plenty of writing on this, okay? But, but we have some hints here that the Lord is here. In chapter 2, he says, I brought you up from Egypt. I will never break my covenant with you. In fact, this is the very same spot where the captain of the Lord's army appears in Joshua, right? So he gives this charge at first, and then he comes back. And when he appears in Joshua, he, he's told to take off the sandals on his feet because he's standing on holy grounds. Does that sound familiar? Moses' encounter, right? So this is, this is the appearance of the Lord here. This is a Christophany here. Here in chapter 2, he is evaluating how well God's people have done in obeying him. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I have delivered you from the Egyptians. I said I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Here's what we have here. In chapter 1, they could not, they did not, they were not allowed to drive the Canaanites out. Those are the excuses of God's people, okay? Tim Keller in his commentary on Judges says this. Look at this quote. Chapter 1 reads a little like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It's their spin on why they weren't as successful. In chapter 2, we're given God's assessment. Very different. Chapter 1, we have man's excuse. Chapter 2... 
heaven's explanation. And when the Lord appears to assess the situation, he says, the issue is not that you could not, it's that you would not. There's a difference. The angel of the Lord says, you've blamed it on chariots of iron and needing secret intel on the strength of your enemies and you have not trusted in God to bring you the victory and do what he promised he would do in the first place. J.D. Greer in his great sermon series on judges, broken saviors, he he puts it in this way. I want to share this with you and, and his application. It's very good. The angel of the Lord says here, where you have said can't, God says won't. You have said can't, God says won't. That's the problem. Believer, where have you said can't and God says won't? How many compromises are being made today because we truly believe that we cannot, but God's assessment is, it's not that you cannot, it's that you will not. Did you know that the spiritual failures in the lives of God's people Israel in the period of the judges in, in our lives today do not have to do with a lack of strength, but a lack of faith. Where is unbelief lurking in your heart? Where are you saying cannot and God is saying will not? Maybe you've made compromises because of your job. Maybe you, you have said, God, if I were completely honest in my line of work, I wouldn't be able to keep my job. I wouldn't be able to keep up with the competition. Maybe you're holding on to unforgiveness in your heart. I know I should forgive, but what he or she has done to me is unforgivable. You say can't. God says, no, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe you think that's just a mountain that you will never be able to scale in your life and you've settled for defeat in that area. You think God who has given you His Son and His Spirit will not give you victory in that area of your life. Believers, it's not that you cannot, it's that you will not. You lack a desire to live for God. You lack faith. You need to bring that before the Lord. Maybe your issues are financial. We talked about this last week. I know I should give to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, but my finances are too tight. There's no way I could give even close to 10% or more and make the house payment and the car payment each month and send my kids off to school. Why don't you try God and see? You're saying can't and God's saying no. It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. God's people, Israel, made compromises in obedience and they paid the price spiritually. Sure, they experienced some blessing for a time, but those blessings did not last. Professor from DTS, Robert Chisholm, in his great commentary on Judges says this, look at this quote, God's people, Israel, were satisfied with partial obedience and partial blessing. God's promises are reliable, but they may only be partially realized and placed in jeopardy when His people disobey His commands and compromise their special position. There are blessings on the road to obedience when we obey without compromise. When we fail to do this, when we compromise, we not only jeopardize blessing, but we open ourselves up to suffering. 
Look at verse 3. The angel of the Lord is still speaking. He says, So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So he says, I'll drive them out if you obey me. They did not, they did not, they did not. And then notice what the Lord says, I will not. Now I will not. I will not drive them out. They're going to be a snare to you. They made compromises because of the enormity of the task and, and, and enslaved their enemies. And these Canaanites, instead of being faithful servants for their good, they're going to become destructive thorns in their side. While it appears as if God's people are ruling over the Canaanites, the gods of the Canaanites will eventually rule in the hearts and over the lives of God's people. I'm giving you what's to come, okay? We're going to see this happen, and eventually their enemies will rule them as well. They'll be completely enslaved to them. Well, upon hearing this message, the Israelites respond in the right way. Look at verse 4. We're almost finished. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, which means place of weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. It's a good response, right? They seem to acknowledge their sin. They express a desire to be right with God. The problem is this revival is short-lived. Instead of forsaking their sin of compromise and clinging to the Lord and growing in godliness, they continue to drift from Him and toward this pagan nation surrounding them, and they eventually become just like the Canaanites. That's the story of the judges. Sad story, isn't it? Thankfully, it's not the end of God's story. While man failed God, God remained faithful to man, right? He remains faithful to His promises even when we are unfaithful. He has sent us one to truly save us. We talked about Him last week, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not a broken Savior. But He was a Savior who came to be broken for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we through Him might be made righteous, be forgiven, and become a child of God's through Him. Christ came, lived, died, rose again to save us. Save us completely. Make us secure forever. Have you turned from your sin? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Are you trusting in Him alone for your salvation? Don't make the mistake of the Israelites here and give lip service to God and continue in your, your life apart from and opposed to Him. Forsake your sin. Turn from your sin if you have not. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation today and be saved. That's your invitation this morning. Pray if you have not that you would this morning. Let's pray together.